Welcome to The World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues of the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the challenges we face and what society needs to do to help solve them. In February 2022, Russian troops invaded Ukraine, starting a war which is still ongoing today and which has brought huge devastation to Ukraine and, according to latest estimates, resulted in the loss of hundreds of thousands of lives. The invasion was widely condemned across the world as a brutal war of aggression and among the actions taken by the international community was the imposition of far-reaching sanctions. It was hoped these would weaken Russia's economic base, depriving it of critical technologies and markets and significantly curtailing its ability to wage war. However, the war still continues. So what happened? Have the sanctions not worked as hoped? And if not, why not? My name is Judy Weldon, and in this episode brought to you by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy here at King's College London, I'm going to explore these questions and more with Dr. Alexander Kupertadze, Senior Lecturer in the King's Russia Institute. He's co-authored an important new report, Under the Radar, that looks at how Russia is outmaneuvering the Western sanctions imposed following its invasion of Ukraine. Welcome, Dr. Kupertadze. Thank you very much for joining us today on The World We Got This podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting. I'm very, very pleased to be here. It would be good to start with some context. So can you set out the sanctions that were imposed on Russia following its invasion of Ukraine and outline what the international community hoped they would achieve? Well, the sanctions imposed on Russia uh, were quite comprehensive. Russia is often also described as one of the most sanctioned countries in the world. The sanctions have been wide-ranging, starting with diplomatic sanctions, that is cutting down the bilateral relationships to the minimum, economic sanctions, trade-related sanctions, and basically the aim of this was to curtail capacity of Russia to continue with its invasion. But we, me and my colleague who wrote this report, uh, we have been mostly interested in trade-related sanctions, and obviously a lot of commodities for the uh, potential military use has been banned for the export to Russia from the Western countries. That includes microchips, semiconductors, not only uh, the ones were designed for specific missiles, but also the ones that can be dual use. That is um, the microchip from the washing machine that can be repurposed for a military uh, missile, but also a lot of other goods, including luxury goods, different types of uh, electric equipment, cars above certain price range. Uh, so yes, a lot of different types of uh, trade-related sanctions. Was it just about turning off money flowing in and out of Russia, or were there also hopes it might affect support within Russia for the invasion of Ukraine? Well, the ultimate purpose was to affect the desire of Russia to wage the war, but a more intermediate objective was to curtail the financial capacity of, of Russia to uh, undercut its economic capability to finance the war, to affect the mood of the public who would face different types of shortages of goods and of services that they would be deprived of because of the sanctions. So yes, everything, including changing public mood, uh, as well as affecting Russia's economic capacity to continue with the invasion. 
So can you explain how you went about assessing the effectiveness of these and outline some of the red flags you identified that suggested unusual activities in the region? So we looked at uh, trade-related sanctions, first of all, and we tried to determine if there was uh, a lot of sanctions busting going on involving Russia's neighbors or, or the countries that kept their trade relations with Russia. And straight after the sanctions have been imposed, Russia has allowed so-called parallel imports. That is, they allowed all the goods to reach Russia via third countries. Uh, so if a luxury product cannot reach Russia from London, it can reach Russia from uh, one of its neighbors, uh, Kazakhstan or Armenia or China. And in this way, uh, Russia tried to keep the flow going, uh, despite the attempts of the West to curtail some of this flow of goods. So this basically meant that some of these goods are now reaching Russia indirectly. And to understand that, we used the trade data. We looked at patterns of trade and any irregularity, any abnormal increase or decrease, any unusual pattern, any unusual routes that the commodity travels. So this was our red flags. There is discrepancies in trade data. That is, if there is an unusual increase of supplies to Kazakhstan, who uh, doesn't need more than, say, 1,000 washing machines per, per week, but suddenly it starts getting more than 10,000 washing machines per week. And also, not only the goods that are going to Russia, but goods that are coming out of Russia. That is, for example, if a Russia's neighbor suddenly becomes an exporter of a commodity that it doesn't produce, or it doesn't produce in large quantities so they can export it, uh, then again, that would be a red flag. For example, we found uh, that Georgia started exporting oil products, and Georgia doesn't have production of oil. So most likely that was involving a lot of transshipments of Russian oil. We looked at semiconductors. Uh, we looked at so-called communication equipments that would include GPS systems, antennas, radio equipment, and there's also a lot of other electric equipment involved, the spare parts of which can be repurposed to be used for, uh, for military equipment. Now, there's a disagreement between the military technology experts to what extent some of these microchips can be repurposed. But uh, we also have evidence that when the drones or missiles have been taken apart by Ukrainians um, and, and Western specialists, they found some of the microchips and semiconductors that have been repurposed uh, from the normal consumer equipment. So we looked uh, mostly at, at those goods as well as automobiles and oil import-export operations. How easy was it to get hold of this data and how reliable is it? Do people declare these goods if they know that someone such as yourself is going to be looking at the data? Well, that's a good question. Well, this is the data available via commercial suppliers. You have to pay for this data. And this is data uh, from the customs agencies from different countries, including Russian customs agency. Uh, one can say, uh, why would we trust Russian customs? But uh, in fact, there's not enough incentive to publicate the data uh, because it would be a very, very difficult task to do. Uh, it's a very mundane and mechanistic process. And, and usually the intervention to publicated data would take a lot of resources to do so. But generally, this is a reliable method to go about the analysis that we did. It's not only relying on certain country or, or the data of uh, customs from a certain country, but also cross-checking 
and comparing between different countries uh, and what different customs of, of different countries are reporting. So what did you find about the ways they're working or not working currently? Well, we found that unfortunately goods are still supplied to Russia, but via third countries. There was some replacement substitution for certain commodities. For example, some of the semiconductors have been replaced by Chinese or Indian equivalents. But more importantly, Western produced goods are diverted via third countries and they still reach Russia. And there are different types of intermediaries and middlemen uh, that emerged in Russia's neighboring countries who are specializing in them. So they, they're sourcing materials from the West and then they're shipping it to Russia. Uh, so now instead of the Western-based companies supplying some of the commodities that they have supplied Russia in the past, there are companies based in China, Turkey, India, United Arab Emirates, as well as Russia's neighbors such as Georgia, Kazakhstan, Armenia, they are now uh, supplying the same goods to Russia. Maybe uh, there's some issues with the Chinese and Indian equivalents because of quality uh, issues, but, but uh, in a nutshell, it didn't affect much of the supply of the goods. Russia can still get uh, the same commodities, but in a different way. The report talks about informal and shadow trade networks as operating in the region. Can you explain more about what you mean by these and how they work? Yes, when I mentioned middlemen and intermediaries, that are shadow trade networks, not necessarily criminal networks. These are very often pretty legitimate companies that have been doing different types of import exports operations that are supplying these goods to Russia. Sometimes there are some middlemen involved, networks with shady backgrounds comprising former government officials in certain countries colluding with Russia-based trade networks to supply certain goods. But that is mostly in the cases of uh, highly regulated or restricted commodities that are military use. But uh, all other commodities, that is consumer goods, like washing machines that I mentioned, they are supplied by legitimate trade companies. And that is because many of the Russia's neighbors didn't join Western sanctions. They just continued with the trade. Uh, they said they would comply uh, with uh, some of the regulations, but they did not outlaw any trade with Russia. That means this is not criminal activity uh, or illegal trade. This is basically trade that is normal from the perspective of, of these countries. What did you find about the impact these activities are having and how they're helping Russia continue to finance its war in Ukraine or obtain the spare parts that it needs? Well, obviously, Russia can still source the commodities that it needs, including the materials for its military industry. There's not much in terms of shortage of any restricted or regulated or sanctioned commodities in Russia. Uh, maybe in some cases, there was some temporary shortage that has been overcome, for example, spare parts of the specific cars or spare parts for the, for the planes. Uh, but overall, we didn't notice uh, a lot of disruption in any of the supplies to Russia. There have been some that have been minor and only short or, or medium term disruptions. So over the longer term, uh, those supply issues have been or less sold. Well, having said that, it's worth to mention that uh, there were some negative impacts for Russia itself, because uh, so-called parallel imports, they also mean new supply routes from Asian countries, from Russian neighbors. And these new supply chains, they are 
quite vulnerable to criminal exploitation than the supply chains that have been established for many, many years before the uh, start of the invasion. And this has led to some issues for Russians themselves, um, because it has led to proliferation of counterfeits, for example. The key suppliers of Russia very often in certain commodities are China and India. And we know also that China and India are often a source of, of, the, of the counterfeit commodities. So it looks like that these poorly regulated and uh, quite unestablished supply chains are quite vulnerable to penetration by counterfeiters. Um, so some regions of, of Russia uh, has experienced these floods uh, with counterfeit commodities. And also that had effects on, on corruption, uh, especially in customs, uh, because parallel imports meant that there are new and very ambiguous rules in clearing goods. And these rules can be interpreted and applied by discretion of a, of a customs officer in Russia. Uh, now, Russian customs uh, officers have been already very, very corrupt. But now this new development has allowed for more discretion. And at the same time, the accountability and transparency didn't change. So we know what happens when there's a lot of discretion with little transparency. And, and that's why we so increase in, in corruption, especially in Russian customs. Were you surprised by your findings? Or was it what you expected having done research into this field before? And what does it tell us about the effectiveness of sanctions? Well, one surprising finding that was that we didn't find uh, much of the organized crime. I mean, I'm a researcher of organized crime. So it's my colleague who authored these reports. And our, our initial hypothesis was that there was uh, lots of organized crime doing this sanctions busting. But what we found were that these shadow trade networks um, involving different types of middlemen, intermediaries that are not necessarily illegal actors. And as I said already, this is partially because uh, a lot of Russia's neighbors didn't join sanctions uh, officially. Now, this can change uh, because we see even more sanctions, even more regulations um, and more enforcement of the sanctions from the Western uh, countries, including the pressure on Russia's neighbors to comply with the sanctions of the West. So that enforcement may potentially mean more criminalization of the sanction busting uh, by the countries that are trading with Russia. Uh, but so far, we didn't find much of organized crime, and that was very surprising for us. What does it tell us about the effectiveness of sanctions? I mean, there's a lot of research about the efficiency of sanctions and how efficient they are when it comes to them reaching the strategic goal. But there's a lot of symbolic meaning as well. When a country imposing sanctions, uh, it doesn't expect that there's going to be a 100% efficiency. Because it also has a lot of symbolic nature as well. Our findings should not be interpreted in a way that um, it has zero effect. I mean, as I said, there have been some short and medium effects in curtailing some of the supplies. Russia has been adopting, but the West has been also adopting. And there's a lot of new packages coming in that is trying to fix the loopholes. And uh, this is how it's done anyway, right? I mean, there's uh, always a way around of a regulation. And then the regulator is trying to come to come up with the new ways how to how to enforce against this new circumvention ways. So we will see how it goes, but, but so far it hasn't been as efficient as it was hoped to be. Your report sets out some recommendations. So could you share what you think needs to happen to address the sanctions evasion you've identified? Who needs to take action and what needs to happen now? 
Well, in terms of recommendations, uh, we thought that Western governments could make uh, a lot more use of the secondary sanctions. The secondary sanctions would mostly be kind of signaling mechanism because, I mean, targeted companies uh, in the third countries, they would uh, change easily anyway. So if you uh, sanction a company that is supplying drones to Russia, then another company would emerge very, very soon that would take over. But it's about reputational damage to these countries. It's about uh, causing the internal uh, criticism towards the government policies. So it's about increasing pressure for the countries to comply. And also maybe a bit more engagement with the private sector, because we found that some of the private sector in the West, they turn a blind eye. And I really like the analogy with big tobacco 10 years ago. Um, that it's big tobacco companies, they would oversupply their products to certain markets, knowing that these goods would eventually be smuggled somewhere else because there's not enough demand in that particular market and the surplus would be taken somewhere else. And this was kind of indirect way of how big tobacco was involved in illicit trade of, of cigarettes. And we think that some Western companies are doing the same. They know that sometimes unrealistic volumes of certain goods are shipped to certain countries, and they probably also know that they will end up in Russia, but they don't do much about it. Uh, so more engagement in that regard would potentially help. The report was compiled for the Serious Organised Crime and Anti-Corruption Evidence Research Programme, which is managed by the University of Birmingham and funded by the UK Foreign, Commonwealth and Development Office. Have you shared it with the FCDO? And if so, what was their response? Yes, of course, we shared it with FCDO. We briefed FCDO staff. Uh, there was an online MS Teams meeting where uh, more than 50 representatives of different parts of FCDO were present. We got lots of questions. We got lots of feedback. Uh, we tried to respond as much as we could. And now, we don't know if there was any further action building on our research. It's something that we may still hear about. Uh, but of course, there's very close collaboration with uh, FCDO in terms of exchange of the research findings. Just coming back to your recommendations, if they were adopted, can you set up what the impact on Russia and the war in Ukraine might be? Well, I think quite simply, Russia would get less of what it needs for its military machine to run efficiently. And that means uh, more effects, more negative effects on its military industry, also more negative effects on its economy and less financial capacity to continue financing the war. But of course, that's a very ambitious goal, right? Uh, but at least if we make one tiny step a bit further to that direction, that would still help. You've already mentioned some of your expertise around organized crime. And I think it would be interesting for our listeners to hear more about that research and how you found that the war in Ukraine has provided fertile ground for new illicit activities to thrive. Can you explain more about that and whether you think that and the sanctions busting identified in this report might create new challenges in the region if and when we see an end to the current war? Yes, unfortunately, illicit trade and organized crime in Ukraine has got um, a further boost by the, by the war because war generated a lot of new opportunities for organized crime, ranging from uh, trade in humanitarian aid to supply of the drugs to the front lines, as well as smuggling of the military age men out of Ukraine. Uh, there was a lot of concerns initially about smuggling of arms and human trafficking. 
those fears did not materialize. We didn't see arms trafficking out of Ukraine to the extent that this was anticipated. Uh, we also didn't see uh, a lot of human trafficking linked to Ukraine. Um, and that's probably because a lot of uh, solidarity in the European Union and in the UK. We extended a lot of social benefits to the refugees from Ukraine. So there was no need for a lot of refugees to become victims of human trafficking rings. But uh, overall, everything depends on the outcome of the war. I mean, it looks like sanctions are here to stay. They, they won't be cancelled anytime soon. So there will be even more pressure and even more regulation from the Western side. And that also means that uh, Russia's neighbors will also comply increasingly with some of them to the Western sanctions. And more compliance by governments means that more of these sanctions busting will go to the shadows and attract more organized crime. We do not have any objective measurements, but uh, most likely Russia also increasingly depends on organized criminal networks in securing some specific materials, military use materials that it needs. And this dependence may even grow in the future uh, because Russia has lost the legitimate connections and legitimate trade ties uh, with, with, with the West. And of course, this boosts illegitimate and illegal and criminal links to substitute those legal trade. So unfortunately, it's all good news for criminal actors who are trying to take advantage of the situation. And law enforcement is kind of lagging behind. But there has been some new initiatives by Interpol and Europol to potentially mitigate the potential impact. But we still need to see how efficient they are. As your report's completed and published now, what's the next research question you're working on and what direction is it going to take you? Well, we are looking at the displacement of organized crime from Ukraine in our new research projects. And we are looking at the ties between Russian-based organized crime and Ukrainian-based organized crime. And our hypothesis is that there was a lot of disruption in the links between traditional mafia in Russia and traditional mafia in Ukraine, as well as cyber criminals in Russia and cyber criminals in Ukraine. But there was much less disruption in trade-based criminal actors. And that is because traditional mafia and uh, cyber criminality was uh, aligned to Russian states. It was used for geopolitical reasons. And hence, there was a lot of impact in that realm. While trade networks or shadow trade networks, they are a bit more autonomous, a bit more fluid, a bit more independent from the geopolitical influence. And we didn't see as much disruption between Ukraine and Russia-based trade networks because of that reason. That sounds fascinating. And thank you very much for sharing your research and report with us today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series.